Het heeft toch wel Alec Baldwin. Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast tackling some of our favourite movies that came out in a given decade. Volume 1, we are talking about the 2000s, 2000, 2009. If you would like the rules on how we came to this list and whatnot, go listen to episode 0, as I said, available on EnterTheRealWorld.com or Mike and Matt on SoundCloud. I am Matt Waters, and I'm joined on this endeavour, as always, by Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? We're recording in the morning this time. It's much more agreeable for me because it's not... A million degrees in my living room. I know, it's nice. It's nice. Out. We might be sluggish. <laughs> but uh, it's, I, mean, I, I just got back from a, a trip abroad yesterday, so... Yes, ah, you've been to my brother's neck of the woods in Amsterdam. How was that? It was nice. Yeah, well, go, let's keep it going. Let's keep the how are our personal lives going section. <laughs> and ate good food, saw Robin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, is that where yeah. you went? That's where we went. That's very cool. Right, well, that'll date the hell out of this episode. This is episode five. We are doing the Royal Tenenbaums today. An emergency episode. Yeah, I mean, we might as well just say outright, this wasn't originally on the list, and then in the middle of recording some of the other episodes, we're like, I think Rod Tenenbaum should probably have been on the list after all. Yeah, like, um, I think like there was like three episodes in a row where we were just like, Rod Tenenbaum is really good, and, <laughs> and, and then we were just like, why is it on the list? I don't know. I guess we're calling this my pick, because I really love Wes Anderson, and while I think I have a sort of stronger emotional attach, or like a stronger liking of elements of the Life Aquatic versus is this i think this is a better overall movie and uh, and it's it's probably the most movie ass movie wes anderson has done possibly i don't know but i mean this is kind of like a hybrid of his styles like this yeah. is kind of the tail end of his like early movies where they function as like movies and he had and like he had a style but it wasn't like so many present and then after this movie like life aquatic judge Ealing limited like they are dioramas and stuff yeah yeah, like, yeah. That. like that's the kind of stuff i think of like when i was watching this again i was like yeah i mean you still got like elements of that absurdism but there's no like here's an obvious like paper mache model of the hotel at a distance or, or or like a wooden cardboard cutout of the the ship you know that kind of stuff where it's just obviously fourth wall breaking but yeah it still has those weird offbeat anderson tropes but it's it's a far more serious movie i would say even if it has comedy in there so yeah written and directed by wes anderson co-written by owen wilson to which i'm like sure thing but there are I mean, elements- like, all, all three of the first three movies were co-written yeah. with Owen Wilson. I think because the Wes Anderson-iness is so pervasive over the top of it that like you're dubious that <laughs> Owen Wilson did anything, but like there are elements in here that are definitely from him. I don't think he's ever actually written a script purely on his own. I don't think so either, no. I think, like, he's got, like, his little cabal of people that he likes to work with. Like, I know Noah Baumbach mm-hmm. is, like, someone he works with quite a lot. Jason Schwartzman as well. Yeah. You think he's got this, like, completely unique insular style, but he, he does collaborate well. So, you know, Anderson also in this decade did, as I said, The Life Aquatic, Darjeeling Limited, and Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I think you made a slight push for. Fantastic Mr. Fox is, like, if I'm, like, talking about, like, my favourite animated movies of this decade, it's, like, Spirited Away, Pick a Pixar, 
and <laughs> Mr. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like I adore yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think it's I think I because I'm not a huge fan of Life Aquatic and Dudging Limited. It's yeah. like this massive return to form at the end of the decade for him, and then kind of like it kind of carries on. I don't like Isle of Dogs. I was so excited for Isle of Dogs. <laughs> I like um, parts of Isle of Dogs. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the bits where it's not set in Japan. It's like why is this movie set in Japan? Why is every Japanese for fanzies? Why is every character in this vaguely Japanese stereotype? Why is mm. Greta Gerwig here voicing yes. the one white character? She's yeah, the whitest like, woman alive. I don't know. I know, but it's, <laughs> look, it looks really good. And then obviously, like Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Grand oh. are. Look forward um, to volume two of this podcast. Is all yeah, I'll say I on mean, that. Like, again, like, but this is kind of like if we're not doing the nineties, we can't do Bottle Rocket and Rushmore. And basically, yeah, it, this decade is kind of between those two. And we both had sentimental favorites in other movies. So this is the the logical. This is yeah. This is the compromise. Kind yeah. of. Released in March 2002 in the UK, December 2001 in the US. We've kind of already covered 2001 quite a bit in terms of the contextualising the year, but if you have anything else... Yeah, I mean, it opened number four at the UK box office uh, in March. It made a little less than a million pounds. I mean, I don't know what did it actually settle on worldwide uh, at the end of the UK box office. So it made about $4 million at the UK box office, which is a big chunk of the $20 million it made worldwide. So the movie made, what, about $52 million domestic, ending up about 71 worldwide, but like, obviously this, is, this some... is very much in the era of like foreign box office. Isn't a huge thing, especially for uh, this tiny little movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is his highest grossing movie, I think, until Grand Budapest Hotel. It was, yes. Budget of 21 million, box office 71.4 million. That's decent, I guess. But, you know, especially because, you know, Wes Anderson does not have a broad mainstream appeal. Like, it's, uh, like, film crowds love it, but it's not something that people are going to rush out and see in mass. It well, that's is- what makes it insane when, like, you look at, like, Grand Budapest Hotel and it made $174 million. Yeah. It made a hundred million more dollars than Royal Tenenbaums. Is it just that there's a bunch of Wes Anderson fans worldwide that had previously been unrepresented until? Potentially. I also think maybe that film, it's not more mainstream because, I mean, Fantastic Mr. Fox should have probably been the one to crack the mainstream, but I don't know. I feel it's less... I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that potentially when we do volume two. Um, so it's 109 minutes long. Kind of flies by, in my opinion. There's not really a lot of big, sexy, like dramatic development stuff because Wes Anderson just makes the movies he makes, and it's like a product of his childhood and his influences, like you know J.D. Salinger, Jean-Pierre Melville, Orson Welles. Like this is all very trodden ground. Allegedly, one of his friends growing up was in love with his sister, and in the first draft of the script, Margot was not adopted. So. <coughs> Make of that what you will. Eli is apparently partially based on Cormac McCarthy. That makes sense. Uh, you know, when he's talking about his book that wasn't in a, it was in an outdated vernacular or whatever. I think they were aiming shots at Cormac McCarthy there. And the whole BB in the hand thing. I was saying how aspects of this screenplay are directly from Owen Wilson. Owen and Luke's brother Andrew Wilson, I believe his name is. That happened to him, and that is his hand that you see in that one shot where he like prods at it. So Anderson wrote. He wrote the character of Royal with Gene Hackman in mind. It took him a while to actually agree to play the part. He said some bullshit about how he like didn't feel he had a lot in common with him or he didn't understand him but then he also said that he had been distant with his family and he asked them if they would feel uncomfortable if he made it and it's like so do you have too much in common with Royal? Is that what you actually mean? (laughs) And while he was dilly-dallying they considered Michael Caine and Gene Wilder for the part and then when they actually got Gene Hackman they let them get you know Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow etc etc. Unfucking surprisingly Gene Hackman is difficult to work with and he and Anderson had a lot of on-set drama and Bill Murray and, and 
Angelica Houston had to, like, protect him, which I think is adorable. And as we mentioned in the Ocean's Eleven podcast, this movie stole Danny Glover, Bill Murray, and the Wilsons from Ocean's Eleven, which would have been filming around the same time and released around the same time. So, there you go. People would rather be in this silly little indie film than uh, do big sexy crimes in Las Vegas, apparently. Yeah. Uh, there's also an article at Vulture where it says, like, apparently Ben Still is only available for about three weeks, and mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow is only available for eight days yep. to shoot this movie or, like, ten days or something. Yeah, which... they had to heavily plan around those two schedules. <laughs> Yeah, is, I mean, is those, the, are those the two biggest stars in this at that point? The Wilsons aren't there yet. Like Owen Wilson is mostly doing his independent stuff, and whilst he's kind of tangentially related to like, oh no, I guess like Shanghai Noon and Meet the Parents and Zoolander have all come out by this point. For Owen yeah, Wilson. but like I feel even at the heights of Owen Wilson's fame, he's not like a mega A-list star. It's kind of just like that guy who you know who he is, and like he's in a bunch of dumb comedies. Yeah, I mean like Ben Stiller's kind of late nineties is kind of huge, huge. Three years post, there's something about Mary at this point. Yeah. So obviously, like, he is big A-list. Like, in, in the comedy world, he definitely is. Yeah, but he's yeah. also, like, picking up Owen Wilson, taking places. So I do wonder whether or not Owen Wilson's the one who talked Ben into doing it. From what I've read, it, that they got Gene Hackman, but I guess that didn't hurt as, like, a one-two punch that, hey, your friend is writing this. Is this the only um, Anderson film that Stiller and Paltrow have done? I believe it is. Yeah, um, I, do, I wasn't sure if Stiller is in, like, Rushmore. I, it's been a long time since I've seen Rushmore. But we see this same pool of like 10 to 12 actors that are in every goddamn Wes Anderson movie and it's, you know this is one of the more iconic ones and yet I don't think he's brought these two back and maybe it's because they're far busier than everyone else but some I mean, of these people lot. got quite busy at one point I mean, so. what, so Wikipedia very helpful got like a big board of like who, actors who appear in multiple films ah there you go Bill Murray all of Bill them Murray's, Bill Murray's the big constant this is the last one that Andrew Wilson and Luke Wilson appear in but Owen Wilson kind of continues to pop up after this yeah Angelica Houston, this is her first one, and then Seymour Cassell is kind of in the middle of a run as well, but he's not like one of the big lists. So yeah, Bill Bill Murray is kind of the only true constant from this movie that continues <laughs> onwards. And Owen Wilson makes a spattered appearance, but well, looks like Ben Stiller and Gwen Patrick have not worked with just, him again. Just you know, the like costume designs, particularly for Margot and Richie, they're so iconic to Anderson's like oeuvre, and it's just somewhat surprising that they didn't get Gwyneth back at some point. I don't know. Gwyneth kind of moved away from making these kind of movies I feel she'd done Shakespeare in Love at this point yeah. what a time but, she had the I know but like it's kind of like Royal Tenenbaums and then yeah like there's not much in this kind of vein afterwards in fact she kind of like what Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow <laughs> I completely fucking forgot that film existed <laughs> yeah and then there's not not really much that's kind of like interesting until you get to Iron Man the most interesting film the third one particularly right let's get into it so this movie is ostensibly a book a book is checked out called the Royal Tenenbaums and each it's split into chapters and there's a prologue and an epilogue and it's all very fucking cute and that made splitting it up into three acts very easy because it's kind of like the first three chapters are at one and then three more are act two and so on so this sort of beginning portion of the movie like the beginning of this movie is probably the most Wes Anderson-y like two to five minutes there have ever been it's just aggressively Wes Anderson right off the bat with it's, the- it's, a, it's both aggressively Wes Anderson and it's so quick it's like the movie yeah. starts and then there's immediately narration and it's just like here are 17 characters that you will get to know (laughs) 
Like, here's their life story up to the age of about mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And then we'll give you the full cast list, which there... includes none of the actors, really, who have appeared up to this point, apart from Gene Hackman and Jelka Houston. Yeah, it's a somewhat odd practice to put the blah as blah on screen, like a like a TV show, almost. You don't really see that a lot in movies. You just see the names. But yeah, the little character intro is like, it's charming and strange. The weird details, like Margot's missing a finger, and, and Mordecai the hawk, and all this sort of stuff. By the by, the reason that bird changes colours at the end... <laughs> Because it, it has more white feathers and they muse that it's like how humans' hair goes, like, grey or white. They were filming in and around New Jersey and New York and someone from New Jersey fucking stole the bird and demanded a ransom. <laughs> New Jersey confirmed as trash forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, this continuing motif of when you see the adult versions of all these, these characters, everyone's getting ready in a mirror or in a bathroom of some sort. It's all very it's all very cute how it all, like, tonally... I mean, like, it, it's also handy because they literally lifted this and put it in the trailer so like, you watch the trailer and it's got all the shots of like all the stars in the movie that are going to be in there but it's a very easy thing which is like look at all these big actors we've got including like I mean this is Bill Murray's like first or second time doing this kind of role yeah I think he had had some big movies that flopped so he was like I'm going to do little like low stakes comedies now yeah I mean I was, I was at the, the Vulture interview they were talking about how obviously like he had some flops he didn't have like the strongest 90s like well, after Groundhog Day he's got a couple of sporting things but this feels like such a logical Bill Murray role yeah. looking back on it but like I imagine back at the time it's like what Bill Murray star of Ghostbusters and mm-hmm. all these like massive massive comedies and stuff like that but obviously like he's got these little roles going back like he has Edward he's got Space Jam <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the one two of Bill Murray. The one two, uh, Edward, Edward, Space Jam. They were year year after year, but also that they're both these very memorable cameos. Yeah, yeah. Or like like not huge roles that he's got in these movies, and that's kind of what he pivots into. Yeah, Lost, this is, Trans- Lost in Translation is like the last Bill Murray movie that you will go see because it stars Bill Murray, and then everything after that is like his little appearances that he does in Wes Anderson movies. His little I mean, cameo. He is in. the lead in Life Aquatic, but yeah, that is a sort of it's another Wes Anderson movie. It's an ensemble cast. Blah. blah. Yeah, I mean, like Zombieland is another one that's kind of that kind of role that he's doing. Yeah, this just this feels like what Bill Murray's been doing forever, and it, you know, it's been twenty years now of this kind of thing with a very sporadic sort of larger role. But I mean, he's got he's got that fun thing where like it, the, what the rumor is that he's got like a, an answering machine message box that like you have to call him up and leave a message of what your pitch is, and if he likes it, he'll call you back. <laughs> that's fair. I think they should all be doing that. Isn't that just an agent? <laughs> no, but he's, he runs it himself, and so like people will just call him again to do stuff which is why you end up with weird things like him appearing in Parks and Recreation as the never-before-seen mayor. <laughs> Very good. So we, we meet this quirky family, like, royal as an asshole, basically, and he and Ethel are getting divorced, and their three wunder kids are phenomenally successful child prodigies in various disciplines, and then as adults are just kind of stuck in that sort of post-success malaise. And It makes it reminds me of that, like, that tweet that's going around, which is, like, if you were told you can read at a high school grade level whilst in whatever the last term is in America and stuff like that, you now have a crippling anxiety disorder. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all that kind of thing. Like, these kids are like the smartest, yeah. most functional children in the world, and then, or as adults, they're all riddled with self-doubt and mental health disorders. Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, to move on to chapter two, like, to meet them all as adults, and they're all dressing almost like the same as they were as, as fucking kids, except, you know, Richie's got a beard that... Well, I mean, you know, he, he's stuck in his I was a successful tennis player stage, so I guess that bit I mean, is I still mean, Chaz, there. But... Chaz has moved from suits into tracksuits. 
Yes, a thing that Ben Stiller asked Wendell Anderson about, and he came up with a bullshit excuse on the spot about how red is a good colour for, like, spotting people, and, like, how he's <laughs> so safety conscious, and then he later admitted, yeah, I was making that up just to make you go away. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some critics claim that it's, like, he's running away from his trauma, but, like, that's a fucking reach. You got Chaz in the red tracksuits and his two, like, identical sons who all follow the same routine, and Margot's wearing that big fucking coat and dressed like Nico and uh, Richie is beyond Borg, basically. <laughs> the the tragedy of Chaz not even remotely moving on from his wife's death and, like, how he does this fire drill at 4am or something and, and, like, oh, we left the dog behind. He's like, doesn't matter. <laughs> like, oh, wow, this is this is incredibly unhealthy, you, you kids. Royal catches wind that... So Ethel's... I guess her colleague, I don't... You know, Henry, played by... Uh... It's, it's, her, it's her accountant and basically okay. she's he's telling her that you should do something to distance yourself from your ex-husband mm-hmm. because he's gone bankrupt essentially he's kicked out of his hotel yeah he's been living in a hotel for like 22 years and he can now no longer afford it and so like he proposes to her he first phrased it as for tax purposes <laughs> which is the most romantic thing you can say but yeah when Royal like catches wind of this he like rocks up at the house and like wants to spend time with them all and he claims to be dying and he wants to meet his grandchildren for the first time and like it's all what it is Royal's a massive asshole. I really like when he goes to meet the kids at the like, you know, that rooftop workout place at, at a Y or whatever. And he says, how often has he got you kids you know, working out? And they say 16 times a week. It's like, <laughs> well, how the fuck does that maths work? <laughs> Two times a day except on weekends, but it's three times a day. <laughs> Okay then. Yeah, I guess that works. Anyway, <laughs> I like that. Like they're working out though is like they kind of sat on the they're of playing the near of yeah exactly. They're not and like, the dog's just kind of there, and one of them has to like, always keep an eye on the dog and make sure it's like tied up properly. Indeed. And you know, like Royal takes them to the to the graveyard, and like he constantly forgetting that Chaz had a wife that is dead because he's just a massive asshole. And like picking up some of those flowers that they've put down for his mother or whatever, and reusing. It. You know, they 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 make it immediately obvious, Royal as a complete, complete asshole. And, like, you know, they cast Gene Hackman, so what more do you need to do? The tennis commentary over Richie's, like, career by Wes Anderson and Andrew Wilson, who I assumed it was Owen, but then I looked it up and it's, it is that third Wilson. Oh, he does, he does, he does sound, I was, I was going to say, it sounds like a Wilson brother. They sound, you know, like, Luke and Owen sound a little bit similar, but apparently Andrew sounds exactly like Owen because I was convinced it was Owen Wilson. But, yeah, it's Wes Anderson and Andrew. I, I fucking love the tennis commentary. Like, I, it's a very specific thing that I'm into, but this sort of, like, incredibly low-energy, quiet commentary over a boring sport, I think, is, is always very funny. <laughs> I, I like tennis, uh, but, you know, it's it's not the big sexy sport, you know? Yeah, that's really fun. The character intros and all that work really well, but the sort of initial them all coming home bit, or, or visiting home, or, you know, Royal first turning up, at this point, uh, it's a little bit, like, eh, to me, and I think it really picks up in this second act, where Richie tries to talk them all into letting Royal stay with them and they say no but then he like I mean we find out he's faking but you know he he has like a medical condition and like it forces their hand and you know you get Royal bonding with his grandchildren I think from here this sort of middle stretch of the film is where I think it is actually really really working personally I and mean, you know it's not that the, the beginning is bad by any means like I really like those intro scenes like I said but like your kind of first interactions with the adult versions of all of these characters and maybe it's just overload of characters where you're like wait so this person 
as this person and you know maybe it's that but I, I feel it really picks up in this middle portion I think like when they're all together it really starts cooking but I do enjoy sure. all the little kind of random bits that you mm. kind of get like Richie on the boat and yeah. the first time you see him as an adult he's like sending the message but it's such like a Wes Anderson way of sending a message and, like, he's sending a telegram yeah. and he's like read it back to me and then he goes like new paragraph and then like <laughs> they cut away to some narration from Alec Baldwin and then they cut back to yeah. him just going like yours Richie and it's like <laughs> why did we yeah. why did this need to be this long to secure this thing but no I like all the stuff on the boat's fun I think just the way they're describing like here's all the places he's been and then yeah. the really long explanation of like how he got home and where he had to get off and <laughs> yeah that's what I'm saying like the beginning of the movie being like so aggressively Wes Anderson all that kind of stuff like the hyper specific needless details that the narration and oh it's it's so Wes Anderson it's great Bill Murray's reading of the line well I want to die while taking a biscuit is hall of fame good you know you got the me and Julio down with the schoolyard song which is really fun the soundtrack to this in general is very very good it's not that he ever does bad music but I feel like music is far more like prominent here than it is in the other stuff yeah like he's got a score by Mark Mothersbrough from Devo which is like it's fun and light and really fits the movie but then there's a lot of independent well, not independent stuff but like there's a lot of like stuff in the soundtrack that is not your obvious picks for like no. these things but then there are also the big licensed songs as well like there's some Rolling Stones stuff in here and the music to me like really sticks out as part of the film in a way that it doesn't normally for his stuff like it I, I really like that they keep using Christmas Time Is Here from <laughs> from the Charlie Brown yeah. Christmas movie just oh because it's God. like it's just like why, why is this playing right now I understand like it's a song of its own mm. but it's so that song is so obviously like linked to one piece of media that to keep hearing it it kind of like yeah, it, would every be, time I know. it would be like repeatedly using Where Is My Mind in a TV show after Fight Club <laughs> exists go to entotherealworld.com and listen to Countdown to Destruction if you want to get that reference so you know you see Royal like just teaching them to be assholes basically the little kids like raising hell around the neighbourhood and you know he takes them to see like dog fighting which he did with Richie when he was young and stuff like that and I really like the scene where um, Chaz confronts Royal in the sort of the game cupboard with all the board games. I think it's so well shot, like the light turning on and off and like, you know, turning the light off and then the door opens and then closes and then he turns the light back on. And Yeah, I just think that's that's really, really well done. And It's such like a, I don't want to call it a proto Wes Anderson shot because it is like a fully formed Wes Anderson shot, but it is so completely his kind of shot in that like the frame is so overloaded with information in that like all three walls that you can see have got all these different board games have all got colours and designs that Mm. should be kind of like clashing against each other, but work to kind of create this picturesque thing and like framing the two actors in the middle with the light bulb and everything is just framed so perfectly. And so, uh, I mean, and you get it so often is his movies feel like dioramas and this this yes. one kind of does have a little bit more of kind of like freedom of camera movement but you've got things like the scene on the bridge later on which is probably that the clearer shot of like it's shot at a 90 degree angle and it keeps kind of like flitting between those two angles essentially yeah. before he's coming doing, together in the middle he's doing a lot of oneers in this movie as well like the camera is moving and but like the sh- there's no cut as it were I mean it's yeah. probably not actually a oneer but it sort of feels like one um, but it like it like moves from like one perfectly constructed angle on <laughs> yeah. set 
steps across like more of a perfectly constructed set and then settles in like another perfectly constructed yes. angle on a set. Which I mean, is... that, that's Wes Anderson. It's like, it's a lot of like very colourful, out of time locations. They deliberately make it a little bit era non-specific. Like we, we know at the end, based on the gravestone, that by the end of it, it's 2001. But like they are deliberately taking some stuff that looks very 70s or 80s or even 60s at times. And you know, I mean, like, none, none of the computers in the movie are like yeah. 2000, 2001 era. They all look like they're kind of like 1980s, kind of like IBM Apple things. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, that is that is how he likes to, like most of his movies, I think he likes to divorce them from like real time, as it were. And like, you know, sometimes you do know what the year is, but like he makes an effort to visually make it look like it could be from almost anywhere. And like, you know, he also loves, like you were saying, like every bookshelf, like every book on there has been meticulously arranged in this game cupboard as well. It's like, I 100% know he has sat there and picked every fucking game and moved them around until they looked fucking perfect but it's great it it gives us 20 amazing seconds so good job yeah the thing that i find most interesting about like what rawl's doing here is Mm. that it's obviously the reason he's in the house is to try and break up angelica houston and danny and danny glover yeah is the whole reason he's in the house but he is genuinely bonding with these two kids even if he's kind of simultaneously falling back into his old trap of ignoring Chaz and Margot and kind of like focusing on Richie as like Richie's his favourite favorite. child yeah yeah because he was the one that he took to see the dog fights and like he calls him Bauma which you get the sense that it's from his tennis career you know Tenenbaum Bauma and like you know it's something that like his fans call him and for his own dad to call him it as well it's like oh, okay and you know you get this sense at times in the movie where like Royal acknowledges he's basically not part of this family and it's like stuff like that it's very telling and i mean he hasn't spoken to to richie since the tennis match because like one of the first things he says to him is like i had a lot of money riding on that game well i think he said i had a lot riding on it financially and emotionally or something <laughs> yeah but like but financially is the thing that he says first oh yeah, yeah and he's like what's going on with you why are you why are you not functioning and, and i think that's when we cut to what actually happened during the game and you get <laughs> like the long explanation of like oh look his sister and her new husband are here yes uh, they got married <laughs> yesterday and it's like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know like he's stole money from Chaz, and Chaz fucking sued his father. And you get the sense that, I don't know if he outright says it, but he kind of doesn't really fully consider Margot his daughter because she's adopted. Yeah, he always says whenever he's introducing her to someone is, this is my adopted daughter Margot. And it's like, what a way to to not ingratiate a child. Yeah, I think as Richie is like a quieter person, I think Royal finds it easier to like dominate him, I guess. And that's why he's the favourite. But it's in this stretch, like chapter five, where he's successfully kind of meddles in Ethel and Henry's relationship and then Henry deduces correctly that he's not really sick and you don't um, eat three cheeseburgers a day with <laughs> french fries if you've got stomach cancer indeed but then um, but then it does the thing this movie does so well which is it takes this kind of like Wes Anderson-y dialogue Wes Anderson-y looking thing because like the things that characters say in this movie no other character in any other movie could conceivably like say without feeling like this is really weird but then you get the whole thing where like he he accuses Royal of faking the stomach cancer and they go like well how do you know what stomach cancer looks it's like my wife died of it and it's like oh okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also this whole like racial thing that that royal has towards henry where he calls him fucking coltrane and says he's gonna like talk jive to him it's like whoa we are walking a line here aren't we i get it that it's all like being absorbed by the character and to make you not like him but then Chaz won't call henry by his first name and i don't know if that was intended to also be like a maybe a more class-based racism rather than just overt racism i 
I took that as being like, I don't want you to remarry. Like, you've yeah. been the petulant child in this situation. I don't want to have to introduce more family into this thing, especially after my father figure is such a, like, a notorious fuck-up. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just unfortunate that you can draw that through line if you want to. Like, Anyway, so you said how he's come here to meddle with that, and then he finds himself genuinely bonding with the kids, and they do it in that line where he says, this last week has probably been the best of my life, and then the narration is like, as soon as it left his mouth, he realised it was true. Implying he didn't mean it when he said it, but then he realised it was true. <laughs> so yeah, you know, the, this is where we start getting into the potential tragedy of Broil. I don't think they ever fully ask you to, like, forgive him, because I wouldn't. But this is where they start being like, well, you know, here's the sad little man you should pity behind the, like... I think they just about managed to walk that te- that tightrope of, like, he is a fundamentally, like, bad person. Yes. But by the end, he is trying to better himself. But obviously, I mean, the end of the movie kind of, like, cuts short anything that... Any, like, mending bridges he could do. But I think he, he genuinely seems to be becoming a better person by the end of the movie, just in the different ways he actually talks to his kids and stuff like that near the end. Yeah. But, um, I mean, at this point, you know, he admits that the timing is partially due to the fact he's just been kicked out of the hotel and he talks about the effect that his brush with death has had on him and he's like but you're not dying he's like yeah but I'm gonna live and I was like Jesus Christ and I fucking love Pagoda stabbing him with a little pen knife you know you like, got me you got me fired it's that great little bit where he goes like oh I was stabbed once by an assassin or whatever and this man carried me to safety and he goes oh who stabbed you and goes oh he did <laughs> a bad assassin if he, if he carried him to his uh, to his safety so chapter 6 is where we get the real heavy shit because Riley and Richie and I'm now thinking did uh Grey Worm Jacob Anderson his stage name is Riley Richie did he name himself after this pairing of characters that would be weird if it yeah was. it would anyway but yeah Riley and Richie well Riley has hired a private investigator to look into Margot essentially and they find out here about her past like she's been married before <laughs> it and, is like, he is generally named after the characters from Royal Tenenbaums fucking boom podcast exclusive <laughs> except you googled it and found it to be true so it means I did it's on his wikipedia page as a musician he uses the name alias Riley Ritchie named after his favourite characters from the Royal Tenenbaums excellent there you go we cracked the case so yeah Margot has globetrotted and like you know she had the affair with the woman in Paris and she was touched up by Charlie Rose and (laughs) all these other things and she's been married and this causes Ritchie to transform from Jason Schwartzman into Luke Wilson I'm sorry but like you look at him with the beard and the hair and the sunglasses and you know that you know Jason Schwartzman is in all these Wes Anderson movies it's like oh yeah that's Jason Schwartzman it's like no that's oh yeah it's Luke Wilson isn't it so I just I find that really funny but yeah he shaves and cuts his hair and tries to kill himself and everybody rushes to the hospital and Riley leaves Margot and then all this stuff and like so this line I'm going to kill myself tomorrow comes directly from a French film called The Fire Within which was a Anderson influence Elliot Smith is apparently not at all happy about his song being used in this suicide scene but I was gonna say like I think it's beautiful like it's sad but it's a wonderful scene like it's probably the most if you take out the whole general Wes Anderson aesthetic of the intros being so incredibly Wes Anderson-y this is probably the the scene that like has the most impact to me I think this is the best use of Elliot Smith I've ever seen in yeah. anything really I mean and obviously Elliot Smith kind of he's using a lot of things but he's very much that kind of like does he not indie- know that he's like a sad person like 
I mean, he obviously wouldn't have known for the last 16 years or so. No, but, you know, this... this comes... Yeah, the, the perception of all his music is that is very sad. Yeah, does he but not know he's like, like a depressed person icon? But no, this this scene is wonderful. It's kind of like, all the build-up to it is Riley sat at home with, with Dudley, and then, like, he closes the door on them and then walks into the bathroom and... Yeah. It's just, yeah, exactly. That it's no, it's so like incidental. I guess like he just sort of excuses himself to go try and commit suicide. Like, and then and then the kind of music cuts out and Dudley walks in and kind of screams and you get kind of like it's brutal as well. Like he really went for it. He didn't do the dramatic, you know, the the poetic single slash or anything. And like when he shows Margot the scars later, it's like Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> like you really went for this. But yeah, I just love that it cuts out the silent scream and then the music kicks back in as they're all, now, as they're all rushing to hospital. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's great stuff. Like with them all, like once they found out about Royal, they've all gone their separate ways again, and then like this is what brings them back, and that's all great stuff. It's just, how do you feel about this in general? Because what is it really about Margot's past that would like make? I mean, I mean, they also find out at this point that like she's been banging Eli. I guess is the big thing. But I think, I think for for Riley, it's about she's been repeatedly cheating on him because like you get all these ages and you realize that they've been married for what five or six years at this point. So like she's sure. been continuously cheating on him and that's what hits him I think what hits Richie is that that it's Eli not him no I think it's more the realisation that she's got this entire secret life oh, you, you, kind, you, kind, you, yeah, you kind of get it in that moment at the end where like yeah. Raleigh says, like, she smokes, is his first reaction. And it's this thing where it's like, oh, she's she she smoked this all this time. She ran away from school and she had all these affairs. She's been married. She's, like, yeah. just this list and list and list okay. of all these things. That... And, and her brother has no idea that these things have happened, yeah. despite being nominally the person she's closest to in the world, yeah. even though they can't have a conversation because he's communicating to her technically through Eli. Yes. She's communicating to him through Eli. That makes a lot more sense because my fear was that this is partially one of those oh you're not a pure virginal whatever I will kill myself now I mean I mean, I think that's definitely a reading you can make is this yeah. kind of movie is kind of like slut shaming Gwen Paltrow's character which I think is inherently wrong and I yes. think but the movie never really makes it text Like, but it's definitely a reading that you can infer from it I think it is more about because like when Riley sits down next to Margot in the hotel room it isn't oh you're such a slut it's you made a cuckold of me yes. which, I which I think is the important distinction to make there and then his revenge off of that is I'm going to reveal to your family that you smoke. I'm going to ask for a cigarette. Yeah. And I think and I think that's why I can kind of explain it away. Yeah. Like, it's not that she's been sexually active. It's that she has betrayed the trust or yeah. not entrusted Richie. And like, you know, in movies, you can make readings that the person did not intend. And it's, it's a problem when you can too conveniently marry together several of these like observations into a, like a constant through line. Like that's when it's a problem. But when it's something like this and like, I think your explanation works. It's just unfortunate that you can make that reading. And then, like, you know, to go from the suicide attempt to the... Richie, like, checks himself out of hospital and he goes back to the house and he finds Margot in the tent and, like, their little tearful conversation and, like, talking about why he did it, him confessing he's in love with her and them kissing and then, like, her saying, I think we're just gonna have to secretly be in love with each other and leave it at that, Richie. Like, I think this may be the most serious ten minutes that Wes Anderson has ever filmed, potentially. Like, there's probably, like, one joke somewhere in this 
stretch, but like these two isolated scenes, and like this one is much longer than the suicide attempt. It's just like here's three to five straight minutes of like this is just human drama, and like this is really sad. Like watching these two people just be incredibly sad together. It's I, good. I text you. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I think yeah. both Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow are really good here, and it's a shame that kind of neither of them get to do this kind of thing more often. Yeah. Why um, isn't Luke Wilson a bigger star? Uh, I generally don't know. I mean, he I, he was in Enlightened, which was really good a few years ago, but mm. like he just hasn't. Because I think he's a good actor, and he's also funny. Like you know, he's done his old schools and his you know other type of stuff. Well, apparently, well. he's going to be in The Goldfinch later on this year, which could be good. Right. He's going to be in Zombieland Double Tap. Yay! But yeah, like he just hasn't really done that much. Like he's really good on I like though, and he was also the main role in Roadies, but Roadies is not great. Mm, that's what I so. so moving into the sort of the final act of the movie, sort of chapters seven onwards. So you know, post this suicide attempt and post this conversation with Margot, Richie seeks out Royal and tells him, "Oh, I'm in love with with Margot." And like Royal, while he's initially very royal about it, and like, oh, you know, she's an attractive woman, and so <laughs> like, that's your adopted daughter. <laughs> like, he does ultimately come down on the side of, "Hey, you should go for it and like try and be happy." And it's- I think it's this kind of stuff because obviously, like Royal, he's eaten humble pie. He's gone to work at the hotel yeah as, he's a uh, bellhop the... or an elevator operator in this hotel he stayed in for but I love I love that like he was running off yeah and he's like I'll come like, for us and he's like oh, sure like, why like, yeah, why like, are you going for us like this, this, this guy who he keeps on employing to do random things like he employed this Dusty from the hotel to be his like fake doctor when he was at the house yeah. in this wonderful little thing but he keeps on like he keeps on dragging Bogota along with him as well like there's no reason to to, to take both of them to, yeah. to go visit his son in the hospital or whatever but like he's just like come on let's go take two people to skive off work rather yeah. than just the one person totally I also love that he's that lazy he picks a fucking hospital that's closed and a doctor that doesn't exist it's like you couldn't have just vaguely ugh. Anyway, and then, you know, they go to Eli, and, like, Eli is the character that, to me, kind of sticks out compared to everyone else, and I feel like we're missing a couple of scenes to make Eli work better, because I know he's, like, the point is that he's sort of part of the family, but he's not, so we don't follow him as much, but to me, it's, like, the first indicator, when they go to him, and, like, you know, you need... They're basically just talking about, you know, you need help and stuff. It's like, with what? And this is, to me, the first time you find out that there's anything really good. I mean, you get you get the scene where they watch the interview on TV and he kind of, like, spaces out for a second. Oh, sure, absolutely. And that's that's the the only time you get mentioned that he's on drugs. I mean, you also get the scene when he drives Margot and they stop outside this, like, random house. Sure. And Margot's just like, why are we here? They they drop it in, but there's not enough to kind of, like, he doesn't have enough scenes with the whole family doing things to kind of, like, reinforce force what his association with family is because you get the one scene where he goes like he was around the house all the time and yeah, yeah, yeah. at the birthday party like Royal comes up to him and says like why are you wearing pyjamas and he goes oh he's allowed to sleep around but yeah, because exactly. there's not enough of that like every scene he has is kind of isolated with Margot or whatever and I, I just feel like he takes on such a huge role in this last little stretch and he's kind of just been an accessory until now I sort of I don't know I, I don't think it breaks anything it's just he's the one character I feel doesn't quite fit in and maybe that's on purpose. I mean yeah I can see it as being like he always wanted to be a Tenenbaum and so in this movie called The Royal Tenenbaum he's kind of this destructive force kind of like working on the edges not yeah. quite able to fit in all the rest of it I think it's made weirder by the fact that it's Owen Wilson playing him. Yeah I guess. Because when he co-writes the movie and his brother's playing one of the main ensemble like, it does become a little bit Kind of the lead well. I would yeah, say it, Richie it, it, is mostly the lead I don't know Yeah it becomes a little bit distracting in Yeah that. it does. It does. Uh, 
and I think I, I think Eli is involved in some of the best, the most Wes Anderson scenes. Like he's in the scene yeah. when they're on the bridge, and I think that's a really wonderful kind of like Wes Anderson move where the mm. camera shifts between the two perspectives. There's the scene in the house with um, Richie and Eli where like Eli comes out and goes like, "I want to help you get off drugs." Yeah. And the camera, like they're talking in like the door frame, and then the camera pans across, and there's two chairs that are kind of staggered so they can sit in a very Wes Anderson way and carry on having a conversation. Yeah. It's that weird thing where like there's moments in this where the conflict seems to like starts to resolve really easily where like Richie goes in and says like you're addicted to drugs I'd like to stop you from doing drugs anymore and then Eli goes like thank you no one's spoken to me like this before and like oh this was a very easy resolution to oh well, yeah and then we see what actually happens yeah then he, then he runs off and you've got is it Picoda out the window just kind of go like he is running yes <laughs> oh Royal also gives Ethel divorce papers and gives his blessing and... but we also at this point like when Richie first goes to Royal he admits that he's trying to pay his dues and he's hoping someone will notice and it's like so are you doing performative niceness now essentially I mean I guess it's better than no niceness whatsoever or you know he was faking it before and now he's trying to actually be nice but it is with that hope that someone will be like ah oh, well done you're being nice and it's like he's now gotten into that like you know performative woke type thing I mean you know if the guy is fundamentally an asshole like it makes sense that he would do that but it also then calls into question the sincerity of some of his other stuff that he does after the I don't know I, I do buy that everything he does after this is relatively sincere but I, I mean I mean just, like I, giving the blessing to Ethel after he's just admitted he's paying dues hoping someone will notice it's like well do you actually mean that or are you trying to do that thing where it's like I'm going to take this break up so well that she's going to like see that I'm mature and take me back which people do all the time yeah I mean possibly <laughs> possibly it could be that anyway yeah so chapter 8 on the day of Ethel and Henry's wedding Eli crashes a car into the front of the house kills the fucking dog man like what's the need Matt what? we've done an entire show where the first episode the lead character murders a bunch of dogs and what did I say what's the fucking need <laughs> <laughs> Captain Andrew Destruction on EnterTheRealWorld.com Royal saves Ari and Uzi, Chaz's kids, and Chaz attacks Eli, and then they both end up admitting that they need some help and uh you know this scene is so fast you know like the, the priest falling down the stairs and, and and just this wacky like chase and Chaz like he's like painted his face up for some reason as well well he's on he's on peyote so it's like the implication is he's gone he's gone somewhere to like questionably yeah and he's got his like cowboy motif and at the end his sponsor is like a native american it's, it's like mm, what's happening here again i think like i was saying like because eli is playing such an instrumental part of this like he becomes the well not the villain well, i guess royal was the villain up until now but you know this is the big confrontational scene how would is... you feel if they swapped eli with Chaz in terms of who played them i don't know i can't see owen wilson playing a like the aspect where Chaz was like a phenomenally successful like stockbroker businessman type dude and he has his two kids militantly doing stuff that's very ben stiller to me but then in terms of what we actually see them doing for the majority of the movie yeah i could i could see that that switch but it's just, it's just like the thing that always brings it home for me is like there's the scene where Richie and Eli are like having a conversation face to face and you just sat there going like you sound identical and your faces are identical <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is very distracting that you're not literal brothers in this movie <laughs> yeah yeah true it's just Ben Stiller I feel made a career on that kind of well, I don't say the neurotic Jew type character but you know like that whole like shouty hyper organised I mean thing. I think I think there's like there's like pros and cons of both of them is I think I like the idea of Owen Luke Wilson playing brothers yes, and absolutely. Gwyneth and Gwyneth being the more obviously adopted sibling yeah. is quite nice but then also I do like the idea of like Ma 
Marco is having an affair with someone who does look very much like Richie, That's which you true. don't, which you don't get if it's Chaz. That's true. Very good analysis, Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> Richie is the one that like obviously needs the help, and like Eli has the drug problem, and he's just been confronted about it, and this is how he responded. But Chaz throughout has also been obviously very, and like Royal outright says, like I think you've had a nervous breakdown or, or whatever. And so like, for them to both come to this moment of I think we need help, and so yeah, I mean it works. It's just these two are sort of treated as less important to the narrative than Richie and Margot are and Royal is and stuff so I think it's interesting that Margot doesn't have that kind of same breakthrough like she's almost figured out her shit beforehand yeah in like that weird way is like when I think it's every I think it's everything coming to the fore with her like she's been dealing it's just now everyone knows and it's not a big secret thing I think it allows her to just openly be I guess yeah it's just you get that scene where like Ethelene tells Margot that like Chaz is coming to live with her and then Marco's kind of offended they're like why does he get to come live with you yeah how come he and gets she, to yeah. and then she's just like because he's depressed and he goes oh well, I'm depressed too yeah she's pre-diagnosed herself she knows exactly what's wrong and she's like, well, in women this are weird. more emotionally like aware than... <laughs> it's just it's just that thing where like oh, everyone else kind of gets a moment where it all comes out like Chaz has this moment of rage Richie has the suicide attempt Eli has the obvious drug problem yeah. Royal Tenenbaum kind of like figures out his shit and, like Ethelene like Margot isn't well adjusted but she does it also doesn't get a moment apart from like if you count them kissing in the tent as being like a moment where arguably hits rock bottom but then at the end there's the implication that they are in a relationship yeah yeah they're like standing up spooning at the grave and stuff as I texted you last night Wes Anderson very clearly coming down the side of yeah <laughs> nature versus nurture like they're not siblings therefore they can be in love realistically yeah. despite being raised together for 12 years exactly like you know you were saying like you know if they're like adopted siblings who like find each other in adult life or whatever and then it it's fine, but, like, his love for her is ostensibly based on their childhood together, and, like, you know, they, they ran away together to live in that museum, and all this, and, like, it's implied that they haven't seen much of each other, any of these people, as adults, so it's like, so you love her based on the time where you were raised as brother and sister, and, like, even if you say that Royal is an absentee father, like, they were all still raised together, yeah, it's, and when you, you know, learning that originally Margot wasn't even adopted, this all comes a little bit more troubling and like that this was the get out clause for her and it's like well now I can do my incest story would, because would, would that make you feel like the general absurdity of it would that make it sit better with you though like is there something about them being adopted that kind of feels like you're just trying to explain this away as being like oh, not, a ta- not a taboo whereas if they had been real sister siblings like you'd kind of get real the Benjamin just... real <laughs> I'm, I'm being very mean if they had been I'm biological joking. I do this shit all the time and I if they had been biological siblings would the general absurdity of them falling in love be more acceptable because it's such a heightened stylized kind of thing in a Wes Anderson movie yeah I mean I'm not I'm not saying if he'd done an actual full on biological incest story I would have been like ah I can't get on board with this it's all done in a very like charming whimsical way it's not like a hyper sexualized thing or anything like that it's just it is just very interesting that it kind of comes across as like I want to do it like that but like I have to make them adopted so that people will be okay with it and it's like, well, yeah. I don't think everyone is okay with it. Still. <laughs> does does this movie have like the most object like sexualization of any Wes Anderson movie? I mean, he loves uh, like random nudity, but it's normally like a piece of art or a poster or like an old lady or something. You know, oh, yeah, because there's the there's the naked poster of the woman in Margot's flat, but then, but you, then also you also have, have her like... in Paris like fondling a woman's breast and like yeah, because Wes Anderson is quite twee and very much like and exactly. a lot of his, it's it's never quite 
quite sexualized. Whereas this is like, oh, this is yeah, both, like both to define her and... by her sexual history, and like I don't even know if he was going for this, but like you know the the concept of you know the white woman going to this like I don't know whether to Jamaica or whatever. I don't know. It's all a bit like mm, what are we doing? What are we saying about Margot here? And what are you saying about people in general? I think her character is the trickiest in terms of like problematic stuff of all of them in this epilogue. We end up with Royal having a heart attack and, and dying by this time he and Chaz are on good terms and Chaz is like with him when he dies and it's all sad but like we also get the whole this is what happened to them all and ostensibly they kind of all ended up in a good place Royal helps bury the dog that got killed and like he gives the kids a Dalmatian because there's this weird called little... spark plug yes <laughs> because there's the weird little thing with like as a child Chaz like invented Dalmatian mice or something or <laughs> they drew on real mice with sharpies animal cruelty Ethel and Henry do get married Margot writes a new play about her life and I like that it's to mixed reviews it's not like she's back as a massive playwright to mixed reviews it closes after two weeks it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Riley writes his book about Dudley and Eli goes to rehab and Richie is teaching tennis to kids and Royal leaves the is it the encyclopedias he leaves the encyclopedia Britannicas oh of course to, to the kids to the kids and, and they're in black tracksuits at the funeral which is a <laughs> great little beat I love the kind of like the tracking shot of the fire ambulance fire ambulance <laughs> I mean, kinda. <laughs> Ooh, that's not again. I love the tracking shot of the fire, fire people. <laughs> that was good. Fire engine? Is that what you're going for? Fire truck. I love the tracking shot. I love the tracking shot of like the firefighters at the very end, where you kind of like catch up with all where the family yeah, are, yeah, yeah. and you get royal kind of like haggling with the firefighters to get the dalmatian. Yeah, I like that he buys the dalmatian <laughs> of the fire truck. You go up and down, and like there's enough time in between him haggling and then him walking into the scene with like Chaz's kids and whatnot with the dalmatian, yeah. and the kids kind of go like Buckley's still under the car. And it's like we'll get him out eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that poor Beagle had to put up with so much shit in this movie. Yeah, it's that thing of like royal like even at his most trying to be good, he is still on some level just a giant asshole who doesn't think about other people. But yeah, and you know, you end with the, is it an epitaph when it's on a gravestone? Um, it's, <laughs> it's a wonderful epitaph. Yeah, saying so that, You mentioned it early on that he wants it, like, written word for word. And he wants her to make sure that it's, I think he asked her to, like, proofread it and make sure it goes exactly as, yeah, and it's, he died, like, heroically on a battleship or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? Yeah, so it ends in this sort of nice place I guess and it's like what I would say about the film in general now we've we've finished is to me easily the bleakest Wes Anderson film like it does have all these like absurdisms and like there are comedy beats and like obviously silly things but this is fundamentally a tale about a very broken depressed family there's a suicide attempt there's the you know the death of the dog and like multiple people saying I have to get help and stuff and like even with this sort of happy-ish ending like Eli going to rehab doesn't mean Eli's getting clean and like you know, Margot's play isn't actually successful, although she ends up with Richie, so, you know, if we're saying that counts as a happy end. I don't know, it's just, it doesn't end in a fully happy place. And, like, there are several Wes Anderson films where there is this sort of underlying malaise to the characters. In Grand Budapest Hotel, how you see Ray Fiennes' character, when you see him in his room by himself, it's this tiny little squalid place, and he's, like, all alone, and, like, there's that. But, like, it's not presented front and centre like that. It's kind of an undertone to it all. Whereas this is very, like, here are some very broken 
broken people who are going to spend most of the movie not able to confront the fact that they are like in need of help and it's I don't know it's a very different kind of thing from him here I think I mean how much would you say this is kind of related to Owen Wilson it's kind of half well, the script because you obviously like this this kind of stuff it, it isn't very bleak going forward but obviously Owen Wilson like in terms of the other Wes Anderson movies but obviously we know that Owen Wilson has dealt with depression he's he allegedly tried to kill himself in 2007 I think yeah and it's just one of those things where I mean is, yeah is, he's like writing his own mental well-being into a character played by his brother and then his brother is shooting a fucking scene of potentially his feelings that he would later try and act upon uh, yeah it's it's a good point maybe it is the Owen Wilson factor that he was uh, bringing in this heavy theme of depression and stuff I mean because I think the movie does a very good job with it like because even yeah. in this kind of like heightened thing and it still kind of nails the emotional pathos and like beats for this movie yeah, yeah. I mean it got nominated for a, a best original screenplay at the Oscars yes. I think it's a, a damn shame that it didn't win instead we gave it to fucking Julian Fellows for Gosford Park <laughs> But also, confusingly, this is the year that it was up against Memento, so... Yeah. <laughs> but, like, you have these two fantastic screenplays by such up-and-coming directors, both of yeah. whom have gone to strength, strength afterwards, and we give it to the guy who did Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while since I've seen Rushmore. I've actually never seen Bottle Rocket, but, like, even though it is still silly, it's the most serious of, of his movies. Maybe Rushmore is also like this. I, can't, I really don't remember it that well. I think it's very easy to think of these first three as being a little mini-trilogy onto their own, like, this is the start of Wes Anderson's director. I think Life Aquatic is kind of... Very absurd direction, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is, isn't there an animated se- segment in Life Aquatic? Yep. Or yeah, it's very much kind of like, that is kind of where and Wes like, Anderson kind of erred more into parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk more about Wes Anderson next volume. I love that, so all these title cards that we get for the chapters, because it is being presented as a book that is being read by Alec Baldwin, I think narration is good. We're not going to talk about Alec Baldwin. This sort of tiled magazine and book covers is a recurring theme. Like, whenever anyone mentions a book they've written or a magazine they've been in, we get, like, tiled versions of the cover. It's very cool. I kept getting stressed whenever they'd have, like, a working book of something that was mentioned in it, and I was just like, God, I can't imagine how much that costs to, like, be designed and printed in such a way to, like, have it work. Like, like you get Richie repeatedly reading Margot's plays um, throughout the thing, and I'm just like, oh, God, that must have... I can't imagine how many meetings there were about, like, this front cover needs to look... Perfect. Yes. But yeah, I really like how on those little title cards when it says chapter one, chapter two, you can see what happens in the first thing in the scene. You know, like it'll say, like, he pulled up to the house and this, and then you see him pulling it. It's, it's just very clever. It's like, what if we wrote the screenplay as a novel? Exactly. And I'm shocked they haven't, quite frankly. <laughs> the other thing that really sticks out about this, like, part of its legacy, I guess because it's been parodied a lot, the sort of yellowness, the sepia tone that's over the whole thing, I think that's a sort of defining visual trait to this movie because it is still very colourful it's just there's a lot of yellows and, and, and stuff like that it's... I mean I'm, I'm sure you've seen it there's that famous internet video of like what if Wes Anderson directed the X-Men yes that's exactly what I'm thinking of <laughs> yeah it's like it's like that kind of like has completely nailed down and it, it's mostly this movie it's taking stuff from like I feel like there's not much yeah Life Aquatic or Dungeon no, no, Limited no. in it. It's very much like even even down to like the relationship between the Cyclops and Gene in that trailer. It's yeah. it's the Richie Margot relationship. Yeah, because this is the calling card movie. Like this is the one yeah. people think of when they think of Wes Anderson. Because yeah, which is strange to me because it's like not as Wes Anderson. I mean the as I said the the first like ten minutes are probably the most Wes Anderson need ten minutes. But the overall movie to me isn't as like I think of Life Aquatic and onwards that kind of aesthetic uh, when I think of Wes. 
Wes Anderson. So it is interesting that, yeah, you're right, this is the one that people go to when they're either going to parody it or when they're going to talk about it, I think. I think Grand Budapest has kind of taken the, the role now. I think yeah. Grand, P- Grand Budapest was kind of like, it's the most well seen, it's, yeah. But I do think that, like, Royal Ten of Albums, because it's been out for so long, it's kind of ingrained itself in kind of film history as being the movie. Yeah, well, there you go, then. And we have talked about it for an hour almost. There are elements of Life Aquatic that I identify with far more strongly when I think of why I love Wes Anderson, but, like, I still... This is, to me, for this decade anyway, and, like, you know, maybe I'll rewatch Fantastic Mr. Fox at some point and be like, oh, no, you're right, we should have done this. But, like, this is, like, his best executed movie. A lot of Fantastic Mr. Fox is my affection for Frog Al in general. Sure. And I just think, like, it completely nails that kind of, like... Yeah, it's, it's it's like a perfect melding of Dahlism and Wes Anderson in yeah. those two things, and is I think what I really like about it. Like these little moments, I always think back on like when they eat food and they eat food like animals eat food. Like they're all <laughs> prim and proper in suits and stuff like that, and then food will be delivered, and it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, some foley work there by Ben. <laughs> uh, um, uh, what we have we haven't discussed Dudley. Oh, okay, sure. Do you want to discuss Dudley? From Freaks and geeks. D- Dudley is like one of my favorite like random bits in this movie where it's like I don't even think like the diagnosis that that Raleigh gives for him like fully like satiates my need to find out what's wrong with this person yeah he's like now make it exactly like mine and it looks absolutely nothing (laughs) like it yeah it's that little moment where it's just like he's got amnesia he's got dyslexia he's got and he's colorblind (laughs) and he's colorblind and it's like none of those three things would mean he couldn't create like he says where you can put the red piece and he puts there is a red piece it's like and like you know he's got acute hearing and he's like I'm not colorblind he's like I'm afraid you are that, no, that's, that's one of my favourite little moments in the yeah. movie is like he, he's whispering into the recording and you can just see Dudley in the other room yeah. um, and, and like when the taxi like the taxis that are all gypsy cabs which is so random yeah. so, and he just goes like, there's a dent there and there's a dent there yeah. and there's a dent there like, are they getting at Dudley is autistic like is that I don't, I don't know it's so confusing but it's yeah. just this wonderful little through line that gets pay off at the end when they're just like he's just sat there with like his hand on his knee and everyone's just fascinated by this man yeah the front cover of the book being like Dudley like making this like you know blinking almost while the photo is being taken just yeah the, the tragedy of Dudley the, the sort of unsung hero of the film I mean we... he had a good he had a good year like he's in Freaks and Geeks at the yeah. same time more or less so yeah, recommended to him by Judd Apatow there you go so next week we're going to be doing Catch Me If You Can which we've actually already recorded just to break the fourth wall everyone speaking uh, of shifty fathers who maybe have problems with the IRS fucking boom <laughs> that's how you podcast Go to entertheRealWorld.com, subscribe, listen, follow, comment, do all that good stuff, and we will see you next time for Catch Me If You Can. We're back to some like kind of lighthearted, sexy crimes. Bye, everyone. And I did it for so long, I got nothing to show.